Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our fantastic episode in a moment. But first, I want to thank all of you for reaching out to us on Facebook. It is humbling to see how many of you support us every single week. Thank you. I know that we ask for certain things from our listeners, but we always say the most important way you can help us grow is to tell a friend or family member about us. Help them subscribe, leave a positive review. I know it might seem like a little thing to do, but it actually makes us move up in the list, makes us be able to reach out to more people if you subscribe and leave a great review. So if each one of you could tell one person this week about us and help them subscribe, you would be doing us a huge favor. Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. If there is a mystery in tonight's story, it's not about who was killed or how or why or who did the killing. We know it was cold and cruel, with heartbreaking consequences, no question. The curiosity here is more about the victim's community, that there can exist a culture that would actively defend the killer's right to live, that once the tragic details were laid out, after a jury had its say and a date with an executioner was set, that it would be the victim's family and community to come forward and plead with Ohio authorities to see a difference between justice and righteousness, between revenge and rehabilitation. This is the story of the murder of Paul Koblenz, a farmer in Holmes County and a member of the Old Order Amish. Now, in the 1950s, Amish tourism wasn't much of a thing in Ohio, not at all yet the way it would one day become. The Amish, there were about 6,000 of them in Holmes County back then, kept to themselves. Very little was known about these people other than that they dressed plainly, led simple lives, and had an aversion to cars and electricity and having their pictures taken. What happened to Paul became memorable for many reasons, not the least of being that his death cast a national spotlight on this very private culture and the very special way that they view law and order. Paul was one of six children, born to Mose and Susan Koblenz. Now, there are many sects within the Amish community, and Paul was raised on the conservative end of that spectrum. They absolutely refused to be a party to violence, aggression, or resistance of any kind, even in self-defense. They rarely asked police to investigate a crime, only the most serious of offenses— and usually were excused from sitting on juries. They believed all judgment was God's business, and they left it in his hands. In the summer of 1957, Paul was 25 years old, a young father and husband, learning how to be the head of his own family. 
Now, it was tradition for the youngest son to inherit the father's farm, and that was Paul. Paul's older brother, knowing this, moved to an Amish settlement in Iowa. Two other brothers had died young, and his two unmarried sisters lived with his parents. And so Paul took his rightful place next to his father as his partner, tilling the 150-acre property that would one day be his. Their farm was part of the landscape of eastern Salt Creek Township, not far from the crossroads known as Mount Hope. In 1954, Paul married a girl from Fredericksburg, Dora Yoder, and he and his father began building a home for the couple just a few dozen yards from the big house where Paul had been raised. They were far from wealthy, so it was taking time. After three years, Paul and Dora were still living in the basement of the unfinished home, which rested against a hill overlooking State Route 241, Millersburg Road. They had also started their family. They had a year-old baby, a girl named Esther. July 18, 1957 was a hot one, and Paul and Mose spent it harvesting their crop of wheat. At the end of the day, they retired to their separate houses. It was a Thursday night. About half past ten, Paul decided to eat a late snack of breakfast cereal, and while seated in the kitchen, he watched his wife prepare the meal that she would feed to the threshing crew for the next day's lunch. Baby Esther was in a bedroom fast asleep. Suddenly, the family's dog began to bark wildly in the yard outside. The noise woke Esther, and she began to cry. Dora went to the bedroom to comfort her, while Paul stepped outside the house to investigate. Two men were approaching, a shorter one, five foot seven, and a tall, thin one, all of six foot three. The men said they had failed to navigate a curve on the road, and their truck was in a ditch. They saw the lantern light through the window of the farmhouse and hoped they could get a ride into town. Paul said they would go ask his father what to do. The Amish do not own cars. And he turned as if to lead the men toward the big house on the other side of the field. That's when the short man stepped in front of Paul with a rifle and made it clear that was not going to happen. By any definition, Mike Doomlin had been a juvenile delinquent. He was born in Millersburg, raised in Worcester, one county over, and started a nonviolent criminal career at the age of 12. As he left his teenage years behind, Mike, still wearing a baby face on his slight 5 foot 7 inch frame, had collected a colorful rap sheet that ranged from breaking and entering to petty larceny. A judge who hoped he'd turn his life around arranged for him to be sent to a military-style academy. And Mike seemed to actually straighten up. As a matter of fact, he figured if a little military training was doing him good, more should be better. So he enlisted in the Navy 
and soon found himself serving aboard the USS Iowa. But he hated it. One day, when his ship pulled into port, he simply walked away, went AWOL. He ended up stealing a car, got caught, and found himself in a federal correctional institution in Ashland, Kentucky. Federal, because he had taken the vehicle across state lines. It was at the Kentucky prison Mike met Cleo Jean Peters. The two men made a striking pair, Mike being short with blonde hair, Jean being tall with dark hair, but they became fast friends. Mike served his 18 months, then went back to Worcester, where he landed a job at a manufacturer of metal filing cabinets. His dad was a foreman there, and he stayed in touch with his jailmate, Jean Peters. As a matter of fact, as soon as Jean was released, Mike wrote him and told him, come on over to Worcester, let's blow off some steam. Jean left the same day he got the letter. Jean arrived in Worcester on a Wednesday night, and the two buddies decided they'd go groundhog hunting the very next day. But on Thursday, those plans changed when they were picked up by two fellow hunters who took them to a local tavern. The Holmesville Inn sat on the corner of West Main and North Millersburg, and the men ordered cheeseburgers and pitchers of beer. Lots of beer. Mike had promised Jean a good time, and he meant it. So he made a wild suggestion. They would go steal a truck, and when the Holmes County Sheriff came after them, they would shoot him dead. They would make headlines. They were just drunk enough to do it, too. They found a truck at the R.J. Patterson Lumber Company in Holmesville and broke out the rear window so that they could fire their rifle out of it when the sheriff came after them. But before anyone even knew the truck was gone, they'd wrecked it, slid off into a ditch on Millersburg Road about an hour before midnight. They hailed a truck that came down the road soon after, but it was filled with a family of six. There was no room for them. So a very intoxicated Mike and Jean looked around, spotted a light in a farmhouse, and began to walk toward it. Inside the unfinished Koblenz house, Dora had Esther on her shoulder, trying to soothe her, when suddenly a short man wearing a red handkerchief over his mouth appeared in her kitchen. He carried a rifle and sported tattoos on both arms. He wore dark trousers and a white shirt with a hunting license, and he reeked of alcohol. He asked her if she had any horses, She said yes, but they had been turned out into the field for the night. Then he ordered her into the living room, away from the kitchen, and into a rocking chair. Meanwhile, the tall man led Paul into the kitchen at knife point and ordered him to lay on the floor, spread eagle, while asking him where his money was. His face wasn't covered. 
Paul didn't hesitate to tell him, and the man went and retrieved a leather billfold, removing $9 in cash. Paul told the man he was poor and asked him if the man would leave him some of the money. Surprisingly, the tall man stuffed a $5 bill in Paul's hand and tucked four remaining dollar bills into his pocket. Things were not going so smoothly in the living room, where the short man was beating Dora. He struck her face several times, and even as she still held little Esther, grabbed the collar of her dress and ripped it down to her waist, exposing her undergarments. Then he demanded she submit to his sexual advances or he would kill her baby. His drunken and unprovoked tirade was interrupted only long enough for the two men to exchange their weapons. The tall man took the rifle. The short man took the knife. The short man told his companion to go keep a lookout. He was going to be busy. Then he turned to Dora. This time, to prove that his threat was real, he scratched the baby with the knife across her forehead and cut Dora on the back of her hand. When Dora screamed, he struck her in the head with the butt of the knife. Sprawled on the kitchen floor, Paul couldn't see what was happening to his family, but Dora's screams moved him to action. He leapt to his feet. His faith forbade him from taking up a weapon against the men, but presumably intending to get help from his father at the big house, he dashed toward the door. That's when the taller assailant swung the rifle onto his shoulder and shot him, first in the back, and then, as Paul lay on the ground halfway out the screen door, in the head. The two men fled. Eighty feet away, Mose and his entire family were already on their way. He and wife Susie and their two daughters had been awakened by the dogs barking. When they heard the gunshots and Dora's screams, they jumped out of their beds, grabbed lanterns, and charged into the darkness. They found Dora on her knees at her husband's side, Paul laying in a pool of blood. Mose hurried on foot to the nearest neighbor, Atley Kaufman, who lived a third of a mile away. He told Atley, go get the authorities. Then Mose turned and ran back to his son's house, while Atley ran a third mile farther to reach a phone where he could call the Holmes County Sheriff. Paul was unconscious, but still breathing when Mose got back. Dora had put his head on a pillow and was dabbing his face with a wet cloth. But by the time the sheriff arrived, with acting coroner Dr. Luther High, Paul was dead. Sheriff Harry Weiss organized a search, but the suspects had an hour's head start. A posse of 50 men roamed the countryside. Roadblocks went up, but the two men were long gone. The next morning, a car was reported stolen in Fredericksburg, seven miles from the crime scene. A 1953 gray and cream Pontiac four-door sedan with keys in the ignition and a tank full of gas. As word of the murder spread, a pall fell over all of Holmes County. 
there was widespread unease because the killers were still out there. Doors were locked for the first time, and a peaceful rural community had been changed forever. Paul's funeral was planned for the following Monday, July 22, in Moses' barn. They expected about a thousand mourners, but 2,500 people showed up. They came from Amish communities in and beyond Ohio's borders, carried by caravans of horse-drawn wagons, men in dark suits with homemade shirts and black felt hats, women with white prayer coverings on their heads. During the service, a speaker reflected on how Paul honored his family and his culture by refusing to fight back. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Before Paul was even buried, investigators already had two suspects in custody. It all happened in a flash during the weekend. Sheriff Weiss had put out a broadcast for two local boys whose whereabouts were unknown, 21-year-old Mike Doomlin from Worcester and a 20-year-old man named Chester Carter from the Wayne County village of Shreve. The murder was national news, and everyone was on the lookout for a pair of young men, one short and blonde, one tall and dark. When Chester Carter learned he was a wanted man, he turned himself in. Dora identified him in a mugshot as the man who killed her husband. Carter insisted he was at his grandma's home that night, packing. Yeah, he'd had a run-in with the law. He'd been fined for disorderly conduct, and he had promised a judge he'd leave town, which is exactly what he was trying to do. Sheriff held him at the Wayne County Jail while they continued the search for Mike. Meanwhile, that Saturday, 700 miles away in central Illinois, police officers had their own hands full. A manhunt was underway for two men who had shot a constable named Emery Baldwin. Baldwin was making a routine check on a fishing cabin on the Illinois River when he was struck by rifle fire. Afterward, two men rushed out of the cabin, jumped into kayak, and soon lost themselves in the river, a waterway that was filled with dozens of small islands 
and camouflaged with willow trees and reeds and tall foliage. Baldwin would make a full recovery, but it didn't take long for Illinois authorities to realize they were still hunting for killers. That's because the car left back at the cabin had been reported stolen in Ohio and linked the men to the murder of Paul Koblenz. Early Monday morning, a few hours before Paul's funeral, Illinois police learned a Studebaker pickup had been taken from a farm and was recovered in a ditch after it had run out of gas. A local high school teacher told police he had given two men a ride. And then another caller tipped off police saying he had just seen two men, a tall one and a short one, sitting on a concrete abutment. Police went to the site they described and found and arrested the two men. They confirmed their identities, the short one being Mike Dumlin, the tall one being Gene Peters. Back in Ohio, Chester Carter was freed, and on Tuesday morning, Sheriff Weiss set out for Illinois to bring his two suspects back. He also brought with him the 2520 lever-action Marlin that had killed Paul. Mike and Jean were led into the Holmes County Jail in shackles, using a back door to avoid about 50 townspeople that were waiting in front to see them. That's when Sheriff Weiss got the chance to learn a little bit about Jean Peters, the surprise suspect, how he was also a military vet who had quit school at 17 to join the U.S. Air Force and, like Mike, hadn't taken to it very well. Both men were given separate defense teams and both pleaded not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. Judge Wayne Badger sent them off to Lima State Hospital for the criminally insane and, after a month-long evaluation, doctors concluded they were sane, of average intelligence, and could stand trial. The pair were returned to Holmes County Jail to await their fate. On December the 2nd, 1957, the first murder trial Holmes County had seen in a quarter of a century got underway at the Millersburg Courthouse. Jean would be tried first. Mike would face a jury a month later. Each were charged with first-degree murder, a charge that could end with the death penalty. As I said at the start, the Amish have a very different view of law and order than most. They rarely report crime unless it resulted in injury or death, and they won't sit in judgment of another. But the Amish will testify in court when asked to, and they are not opposed to watching the proceedings. As a matter of fact, they may even take their children and use it as a life lesson the upcoming two trials would see about a third of the courtroom every day filled with Amish. The Amish also see victims everywhere. The family of a murder victim, certainly, but also the family of a killer who must suffer over what their loved one did, and the killer himself, 
a lost soul, surely in need of redemption. They will reach out to all of them, pray for them. When Jean Peters' parents arrived for the start of his trial, members of the Amish community invited them into their homes for dinner. Mose Koblenz visited Jean Peters in jail a week after his son had been brutally cut down. The visit lasted just a few minutes. Mose Koblenz recalled it in his testimony during the trial. Did you shoot my son, Paul? He asked Jean through his jail cell bars. Yes, sir, Jean said. Did you shoot him twice? Yes, Jean answered. Mose said, I got a big farm, and Paul was my standby, and he was doing the work there. I just don't know what to do now. It is a very sorrowful thing. Jean said, I would do anything to get that boy back if there would be a way. Mose left, saying, I hope God can forgive you, and goodbye to you. Two days later, Jean wrote out a full confession. While he didn't testify during his trial, his confession was entered, and the details of the night laid out in full. His distraught parents, Myron and Estella Peters, could only stay for the start of the trial, though his father did return in time for the verdict. They had four minor children still at home in Iowa and couldn't be gone long. The jury who heard Jean's case included housewives and farmers, a hardware clerk, a baker, a lumberyard worker, six men and six women. They listened to the prosecutor's opening argument, why the murder was deliberate and premeditated and deserving of the electric chair. They heard the defense argue there was no malice, no hatred, no premeditation. It was a case of a boy away from home who drank too much. The jurors went to the crime scene, saw the spot where Paul took his last breath. They listened to witnesses, including a tearful Dora, who spoke so softly she was barely audible, and Mose Koblenz, who had never seen a photograph of his son since their culture forbade graven images, yet had no choice but to see images of him in death. There was no question that Jean had shot Paul. It was simply a question of degree, The jury had to weigh the actions and behavior of a man who, at one moment, had returned a crumpled $5 bill to Paul because he'd asked to be left with some money, then in the next moment, shot him in the head. The jury deliberated for three hours before finding him guilty with no recommendation for mercy. The judge immediately set a date with the executioner, ordering Jean be killed by the electric chair in April. The trial was repeated a month later for Mike Dumlin, and he also was found guilty, though he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Meanwhile, the crusade to save Jean's life had already begun. The Amish sent in letters and petitions Discussions about the death penalty filled Amish and Mennonite newspapers. Holmesville School, which sometimes showed movies for the community, 
invited residents to watch a documentary about the Ohio State Penitentiary and Old Sparky, the name prisoners had given the electric chair. Dora wrote to Mike, the man who had threatened to rape her and drew a knife blade across her baby's face, and told him she forgave him. Church ministers and members of the Koblenz family went to the penitentiary to visit Peter's, and 150 Holmes County residents signed a petition asking Ohio Governor William O'Neill for mercy. It worked. Appeals had moved Peter's execution date to November 7, 1958. Nine hours before it was to happen, O'Neill granted clemency saying he believed both men were equally responsible and should have had the same sentence. When the prison chaplain told Jean that his life had been spared, Jean broke down and sobbed. Life for the Koblenz family would never be the same. Soon after his son's death, Mose sold his farm and moved his family to Sarasota, Florida, telling people he couldn't operate it without his son's help. Mike and Jean were both eventually transferred from the Ohio State Pen to Marion Correctional Institution in Marion. Mike was paroled in 1972 after serving 15 years. Jean was paroled the following year after serving 16 years. Both returned home and, interestingly, remained friends. Here's an even crazier twist— Mike and Jean married a pair of sisters, women who had a third sister who was already married to the son of Sheriff Harry Weiss, a son who would soon become the Holmes County Sheriff himself. There were occasions that found all of them together at family gatherings, and Mike later reported that the Weiss family always treated them well. As for all that talk of redemption and belief in rehabilitation, here's what happened. Mike got religion in jail. Prisoners always do. It just doesn't always stick. After he was paroled, he worked at the Orville Municipal Electric Plant, then became an Amish taxi cab, one of a number of English, the non-Amish, who made a living chauffeuring Amish people. Later, he was hired by a Worcester lumber company to drive crews of Amish carpenters to various work sites, where Mike would also hop out of the truck and help them build houses and other structures. Mike's wife died of brain cancer in 1990. He remarried, moved to Oklahoma, and raised Longhorn Steers. Then he moved to Louisiana, bought a houseboat, and lived in the swamp for several years. When someone last checked on him a couple of years ago, he was in his 80s and living in the mountains, spending his time fishing and hunting for crystals. Gene Peters didn't do quite as well, though he never crossed the law again. When he got out of prison, Mike was there, waiting to help him adjust to freedom. Mike even introduced him to his wife's sister, the woman Jean would marry. 
But Jean's wife died three years later, and he spent the rest of his life inside a bottle. Mike said he was certain it was out of guilt for taking a man's life. The two men stayed in touch for decades before they drifted apart. Jean died in 2015 in Monmouth, Illinois, at the age of 77. His obit said he enjoyed gardening, raising rhubarb, reading, and having a good intellectual debate, and that he was a generous person who often opened his home to friends and family in need. Now, most of the details in this episode come from a book that was just published in 2021 called A Murder in Amish, Ohio, by David Myers and Elise Myers-Walker. The book's wonderful. It's a fast and easy read filled with many, many more details about every aspect of this case. And you know what? You can do what I did. Read it for free on the Ohio Library app called Libby. You just need a library card, and you can sign up for one of those online at just about any library in Ohio, and in a heartbeat, gain immediate access. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this case and all of our past cases, head on over to ohiomysteries.com. And also check out killerpodcasts.com. There you will find more podcasts just like ours. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.